Welcome to the Lover's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. You're with Mike. And with Ian. And we're reading through the Jack Aubrey and Stephen Matron novels of Patrick O'Brien. Ian, we put Fortune of War on the shelf last time. We've pulled down the surgeon's mate. How about bringing us up to speed for listeners joining in? My pleasure, Mike. My pleasure. So we're really tightly focused at the minute on Jack and Stephen and Diana having escaped from Boston and having taken part in the action between the Shannon and the Chesapeake. They are victorious and aboard the Chesapeake headed for Halifax. So, Mike, I think as we turn the first few pages of the first few chapters of Surgeon's Mate, we've got to find out what's going on in Halifax. Let's really understand all that we learned from from our friend Karen last time. Let's enjoy the ball. So I think we've really got that to look forward to. They're still a long way from home. So how is Jack in particular going to respond to still being at a distance from family and from Sophie and from his career? How are Stephen and Diana going to continue this maneuvering that they're going through, edging towards becoming a married couple? Maybe, maybe, maybe. And Mike, it's funny, as I look forward to all of the rest of Surgeon's Mate, and I'm looking back through the plot summary, I'm hoping that we're going to see Jack in command of one of Her Majesty's vessels. I have a feeling that it's going to take a while for us to see that. And I'm also looking forward to some new secondary characters. We've been so tight on Jack and Stephen and Diana. I'm looking at some of the names that occur as I flash forward through the chapters, and I'm thinking, oh, yeah, this is going to be the book where we meet Jag Yellow for the first time. And this is going to be the book where we get to meet Duhamel oh, right. eventually, maybe in a couple of episodes' time. And, Mike, this is going to be the book where we meet Stephen's family. Stephen's such a dark horse. He's so disconnected from his family and his past. We're going to meet a relative of Stephen Maturin. Nice. I love... As you know, even before we get to the story in Surgeon's Mate, we've got an author's note from O'Brien, and he reaffirms his desire to preserve the historical accuracy in his stories. He requests license for one tiny historical change <laughs> that, you know, I think he's like misplaced somebody by a week or 10 days in terms of when they were somewhere and when they were not in the actual history. And uh, even refers back to the Eau de Cologne episode in Fortune of War, uh, taking umbrage with a writer who said, ah, that was not generally used by the English at the time of Fortune of War. <laughs> so with that in mind, you know, the incredible minute accuracy along the historical timeline, you know, keeping away from anachronisms, and yet these great characters, these great characters, these great histories, and somehow they all weave in together. They really do. And as the story starts, we are not only aboard ship with Stephen and Jack and Diana and with the surviving and more or less healthy and injured crew of the Shannon, we start to meet the establishment ashore in Halifax. And he's going to provide a great bit of context for our characters. Admiral Colpoise. For some reason, I can't imagine Admiral Colpoise <laughs> being a, a sort of completely neutral, buttermilk, straightforward person. Admiral Colpoise sounds like he's got a bit of side to him. It sounds like he's got a bit of a character to him. So <laughs> you know, that's the kind of name that Dickens would give to an Admiral. We've had Admiral Haddock and now we've got Admiral Colpoise. And Admiral Colpoise comes aboard, and straight away we've got one of the classic Stephen and Jack disagreements, polite yes. bantering disagreements, but passionate disagreements. Jack is going, the Admiral is here, the First Lieutenant of the Shannon is preoccupied with thinking about his dispatch. The Admiral really wants to be able to go and visit Captain Brooke, mortally injured potentially, yes. and Stephen stands resolute guard against all of the fine points of naval etiquette and the height of the occasion. Jack's full of himself and full of the idea that the Admiral should get the chance to have his two minutes with Captain Brooke. But Stephen absolutely says, I don't care if the Admiral were the Archangel Gabriel himself. He's not seeing Captain Brooke. And, you know, the Admiral's forwarded this thought. Jack has sort of stepped on Stephen's shoe to say, he hasn't literally, but to say, Stephen, this is the Admiral. <laughs> and Stephen replies, as only Stephen Ken's here. But luckily, the Admiral, like so many people there, are so thrilled by the victory. And as it turns out, the Admiral's aware of Stephen's reputation as a man who saved Prince William. So he does not take offense. 
And then, as is often happening when Diana enters a room or walks across the deck of a ship, the Admiral's head is turned and... Yeah, he's immediately, you know, inviting Diana to come stay with him and Lady Harriet during her time in Halifax. So uh, Diana whisked away to the top of society as Stephen heads back to uh, take care of his patient and guard him with his life. Yeah. And meanwhile, I I love this description. I think it's a description that we've often had in different kinds. So it's a P.O.B. classic, if you like. But Jack on an emotional high is a character that O'Brien really loves to write about. It says his whole being was suffused with deep happiness for although the victory was none of his, he was a sea officer through and through, wholly identified with the Royal Navy. The successive defeats of the last year had weighed upon him and now the burden was gone. I'm paraphrasing a bit here. The two ships had met in an equal fight. The Navy had won. And as soon as Jack reached England, there was every likelihood that he should have a command via Castor. So it's a lovely job of painting the picture of Jack bursting with pride and joy. And by the way, a bit of exposition to bring us up to speed. And by the way, to raise the goal that Jack might be headed for, which is to get home and take command of this fancy new frigate. Yes. And home is very much on his mind. I mean, he really is worried. You know, like O'Brien, as we've always said, it's real life. It's not all positive. It's not all negative. So just with this, you know, suffused with deep happiness, he's also worried that he has not heard from Sophie. He didn't hear from Sophie the entire time he was in Boston. He worries about this sorry state of affairs that he left behind with Mr. Kimber, this man that Jack had given this power of attorney to, to extract silver supposedly from old lead mines, to spin gold from hay. And you know, from Jack's reading of Sophie's old letters, this guy Kimber seems to be essentially bankrupting Jack while Jack is gone. He's been gone for a very, very long time. He hasn't heard about his kids, his twin daughters, and a son that he has never set eyes on. And I think we've heard about this longing and dissatisfaction in general terms before, but for reasons that I think we'll hear about some more shortly, O'Brien's really pointing this up for it. Not only because like he's been around the world and it's been must be two, two and a half years since he was last in the company of his family. And he's encountered the female shape. <laughs> Has, you know, it's crossed his gaze a few times before. But O'Brien particularly writes that what he keeps calling Jack Aubrey's strong animal spirits are not being <laughs> satisfied. Right, And perhaps that's one of Sophie's, what's the word I'm going to look for here? Perhaps one of the what's one of the flaws in his appreciation of Sophie um, is that she's not quite as red-blooded as he is when it comes to, to that side of married life. And I love the fact that O'Brien often uses this idea of changing your point of view. And he talks about Jack's inner eye. He says, this was all quite forgotten as Jack's inner eye contemplated the parcel of letters that he would find waiting for him. And it's really powerful, this idea of speculating what a character is imagining with their visual imagination. Yes. And Jack is hoping, hoping that connection with Sophie via letters might bring that all back to his mind again. And then he might feel at ease. And Stevens warned him before about just how much he dwells on this and just how bad it is for his character and his mood. Mm-hmm. I loved, you know, we have Diana and Stephen and Jack. They're, you know, they've sailed into the harbor together. They're going ashore together. And just watching them, they're so different from Stephen, Diana, and Jack when we knew them in post-Captain. You know, we have this incredible history yeah. <laughs> among the three of them. And particularly with Diana, you know, forget Diana and Stephen and Jack and the triangle in post-captain. But even since then, uh, Diana having thrown Stephen over for canning in India and then, you know, supposedly is going to rendezvous with Stephen, but takes off with the American Johnson. Now, you know, she's gone off with Johnson. We And we kind of wonder, I wonder, is that it? Is that all we'll hear of Johnson? I mean, Johnson sounds like a pretty monstrous guy here. But despite all the history, Stephen, and and despite kind of losing his love for Diana, has proposed to her so she could regain her British citizenship by marriage. Diana has accepted. And Stephen, I guess, was a little bit surprised because he knows Diana is one of the most intuitively perceptive women that, that certainly he has ever known. And she seemed not to notice that Stephen's great love 
of his life. His heart is now really a little bit numb. You know, he's told us that he's lost the mainspring of his life. And so we've got this odd thing of the three of them headed for shore and wondering, where's this all going to go? And how is this faltering passion for Diana going to stack up against his other passions, his other interests, his role as an intelligence agent is still foremost in his mind. He's pulled off this great intelligence coup, uh, firstly, by planting misinformation with the French and the Americans, and then secondly, by disposing of the two French agents in Boston. And he's got papers that he can go and share with Major Beck. And we get Beck's perspective on Stephen who's got this towering kind of heroic reputation in intelligence circles. And even for an intelligence person is noticeable that Stephen, <laughs> with all of these great career victories, looks meager, shabby, and undistinguished. And Stephen thinks the same thing in a way about Becky. He says, what are we, are we all so distorted? <laughs> and I'm sure that's a, you know, that's a commentary on how intelligence people go about their lives. They become a little bit hollowed out and look a little bit, shabby because they're used to kind of melting into the uh, into the surroundings but after a read through of the papers that matcher is bringing beck is able to say this is absolutely the person that i was expecting and Maturin, it says had reached and surpassed the heroic stature expected of him it's the completest thing a great 18th century phrase it's the completest thing the completest thing that i ever heard tell of these he says will be my bedside companions for many a night. And he's talking there about the papers. Right, right. And, and this papers, this list of agents, what, keep, will keep a firing squad busy for weeks. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so Stephen's never very far away from the life-shortening consequences of life as an intelligence agent. Now, I don't know, Mike, whether this was ever in doubt, but Stephen having really bowled back over with all of this intelligence payoff then finds it easy to get from Beck uh, a certificate that says to the authorities to whom it may concern that Diana is under protection while she's in Canada, even though she's not yet a British citizen because they haven't got married yet. She's not Johnson's willing accomplice and mistress. And this comes, however, with a warning that that protection isn't going to apply in England and that Stephen's therefore well advised to to press on with the marriage thing, if that's what they're going to do. Right. Stephen leaves Beck. He goes to the post office essentially to cash a check, in the in the words of the time. The words of the year didn't yeah. count a bill. <laughs> and he's he's doing this even though Beck has said, hey, we've got plenty of funds to, you know, to for our agents to use for operations. And Stephen, again, refuses to take any payment for his intelligence work. So going to discount his own bill, you know, his draw money on his account, he sees Jack at the post office, and Jack is crazed. He's just livid because there appears to be no letters from Sophie. And and the clerk, while you know, telling him that there, there may be some locked away, says it's after hours and he can't get it. And and Jack is really losing it here to add insult to injury because it's now so late <laughs> and so many people have crowded into town with news of the victory and the ensuing celebrations. He and Stephen have to share the last room in town. Um, he also, again, he learns that Admiral Hart, you know, who's this man he's cuckolded. His old, old adversary. Oh my gosh. He's back on the Admiralty board as well as Mr. Ray, you know, this man who Jack had publicly accused of cheating at cards. So, you know, in the little scuttlebutt that Jack has picked up in town, and then with this lack of letters, things are really weighing Jack down here. Oh, for sure. He's got plenty of reasons to feel ticked off with life. Right. I've got to say, as the reader, my interest is peaked now because we had a really great time working in the close confines of Boston at the end of the last book. But now we're getting the names dropped of the secondary characters that are still part of the background, bigger picture of the story. So my my antennae kind of twitched when we heard about Ray and Hart. I'm thinking, yeah, this is good. We're getting back into the bigger story arc of both Jack and Stephen. Starting to hear about Ray and Hart we know there must be something in the offing. Definitely. And Jack is still hoping for appointment to the new frigate, Acasta. We've we've had early mention of these two figures that are antagonists to Jack, really, Ray and Hart. What else are we going to uncover? So while Stephen was sleeping, Jack discovered 
that not only were there no letters for him, but that a caster had been given to another captain. Mm. So another blow to Jack's sunny disposition, to his mood, and maybe even to his self-esteem. Yeah, it's really, and, and, and O'Brien really kind of opens the wound up, pours the salt in. No letters for you, Jack, but oh, here are all these letters from England for Stephen Matron. So could you take them to him? So he's off to attend Captain Lawrence, the captain of the Chesapeake. He's going to attend his funeral. Yeah. Um, all of Halifax. I mean, this is the historical record, the contemporary record. I mean, this was an incredible affair turned out by full military and both Americans, Canadians, British, everybody there. Yeah. And he's going to this funeral. Uh, he's going to take money to the captured American officers to take care of them the way they had taken care of him and Stephen in Boston. And and Jack is struck down even lower by this loss of Lawrence. You know, he thought so much of Lawrence, Lawrence who'd brought him the news of Mowat, Lawrence who had fought so handsomely in earlier battles and then was wiped out, you know, really at the starting gun almost in this battle with the Shannon, being wounded in that first round of cannon fire. And Jack is a little dismayed that everybody in Halifax is so happy as if they had been part of the battle. And the celebrations kind of overshadow his moment of, of loss personally and his moment of loss relating to Lawrence at Lawrence's funeral there. It's a really great observation, isn't it? He's, uh, he esteems Lawrence, his fallen enemy, much more than he esteems the sort of general social goodwill of a bunch of shore-going people in Halifax. Not that he wouldn't take part in the victory celebration, but the esteem of people in naval service, even on the other side, means so much to him. Right. And we and we know from history that his you know, this esteem would be well-placed. Jack would have recognized him as a great captain. And we know that it was kind of history conspiring to leave Lawrence with uh, you know, a new command, uh, very few people on board, not having been able to work this crew, that uh, it was really not his fault that he's in this situation and, and not his fault that the battle went the other way. Right. And meanwhile, with, with no letters arriving for Jack, except ones indirectly carrying bad news about Ray and Hart, there are letters winging their way around town, which are letters of invitation to the ball. Diana has been helping writing out the invitations and everyone in Halifax, everyone in the shore establishment, everybody in the naval establishment, everybody in the polite social circle of Halifax is ready to party. Right. <laughs> the Admiral's wife is planning this ball. And Diana, I mean, by the way, I think one of the things about Diana is that she's a sucker for company. That's why yes. every every turn of the plot with Diana, she's taken away into some new circle of friends. That's not not a coincidence that as soon as the Shannon tied up, she was taken away to be among the circle of friends of the Admiral. She's absolutely determined, I think, to be at this party, but she's distressed that she has nothing to wear. And I think her first comment on this to Stephen is to say, I'm not going... I've got nothing to wear. I don't want to sell my jewels in Halifax. And she's being a bit sniffy about Halifax just to buy a French gown. So the first thing that Stephen's able to do for her <laughs> is, is help her in her settling into the social scene. And he buys the dress for her and she tries it on with Johnson's diamonds, which I think is a bit of a hurt for Stephen. Yes. And He's. I think he he offers her this this hint that maybe you know for a provincial gathering he says maybe they're a bit much, and we talked about this in, in the interview with Karen right that actually there's nothing underestimated or understated about those diamonds. There are going to be other. What did she say that, that the other lady has emeralds the size of soup plates? Right. So right. once the dress is in place and once the jewels are in place, I think it's pretty much secure that Diana's going to this party. Right. It's funny. I remember in the original gun room discussion around Surgeon's Mate, there was so much hand wringing over Diana kind of taking advantage of Stephen because she really had money. She really could have bought a gown. And everybody seemed to miss this point that she definitely could have bought one, but she did not want to sell her jewels at a much lower price. She knew she could get them a much higher price when she gets back to Europe. So I, th I thought this was quite wise of Diana here. And, uh, you know, it's it's part of that subplot of you know I'm I'm out here in the backwoods and this is not the place to transact big business. So Karen set us a right on Halifax there. <laughs> she surely did, and you know D Diana's great strength 
certainly compared with Stephen and Jack is that she's worldly, right? She knows a bit about the world. Stephen's worldly in terms of intelligence, but I still don't think he knows his way around polite society that well. And Jack is, as we have said many times before, all at sea when he's ashore. And she's she knows the lay of the land. She knows where she is. She knows the kind of environment that she's in. But it's so interesting, speaking of, of worldly, you know, part of the thing that, that Diana then, along with his invitation, passes along to Stephen is this invitation to speak at the Institute in France. So yeah. the world's top scientists coming together. And Diana remarks to Stephen that she didn't know that he was such a great man. And what a pity it is that he won't be able to go, of course, because France is in the midst of a war with, with Britain. Um, and Stephen's not, he's not a neutral, he's not an American, but Stephen assures her that he will in fact go and that, oh, by the way, he's had to turn them down before because scheduling conflicts and looks forward to being there and talking with the other great men of Europe. So um, I couldn't help but thinking, here is here is Stephen getting all these letters, getting this renown and everything else. And I'm, I'm thinking, oh God, now Jack's going to hear about this as well. Poor Jack. Yeah. <laughs> And this, this conversation about the invitation to the Institute also offers the chance for yet another sort of avoidance of Maturin opening up to Diana about his world of intelligence. I should not make much of an intelligence agent, I'm afraid, he says to, to Diana. She says, no, I can't imagine anyone less suited for it. Not that you are not intelligent. In your way, you're one of the most intelligent men I know, but you would be far happier among your birds to think of you as a spy. Oh, Lord. And again, she's playing this worldly thing. You know, I, Diana, know a little bit about the world and I can't see you, the bird-fancying strange guy that I'm somehow in love with, in this role of <laughs> the intelligence agent. And on the one hand, the triumph is that he's managed to maintain the the concealment for so long. But on the other hand, to be so concealing that part of his character for some, from somebody with whom he has such a strong personal connection must be really, really a wrench. Yeah, for sure. And, and you know, uh, you don't make a good intelligence agent. I can't believe you've got this kind of invitation. It's uh, <laughs> a little, again, insult <laughs> injury, insult injury. Yeah. And then here comes the real part, too, because Stephen asked for Diana to give him his her paperback, the one that he obtained for her, for her citizenship papers, because he wants to take it to a priest and arrange for their wedding. And she puts him off. She looks a little distressed. She's confused. She says, you know, what's the hurry? Asks him to please not be disappointed. And then conveniently gets called away to meet an important guest. And and my heart went out a little bit because Stephen notes that yeah. you know, she moved as he watches her leave. She moved with the perfect unconscious grace that had always touched him. And he felt a wave of tenderness allied to his former passionate love, perhaps its ghost. Ah, so we've got Stephen there looking at Diana. Diana, now, you know, we're getting a little bit of that kind of, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Is she kind of backing away from him yet again? I can't believe it. And and luckily, yeah. we're saved a bit as Stephen leaves here. Yeah, because he meets the the footman who's an old folks' hand from the surprise. Um <laughs> whose leg, I think Stephen says that he'd saved only for that same leg um, to be lost at the hands of a drunken surgeon in another ship. Right. So one man who thinks he's lost part of his heart bumps into an old shipmate who's lost his leg. Yeah, I'm sure there are parallels we're meant to see there. Right. Stephen, you know, finds Jack. He extends his old shipmate's greetings. And, uh, you know, he kind of consoles Jack. I'm, I'm sure you'll have plenty of letters on the next, you know, the next packet. And, and Jack sets him straight saying, look, there's no packet due. I'm not going to be getting any letters. I'm not getting letters. And now, horror on horrors, he has to go look through the American prisoners and identify the British deserters, the men he's known from their past naval, naval service, so they can all be hung. And uh, we know, again, it's just like, God, just continuing to pull Jack down into this hole. Oh, and the thing that he's proud of most in his life is his position as a naval officer, and he's proud of doing his duty and the the good of the service. And this is the most destructive thing that he could be asked to do. Right. right. Uh, to sit in judgment over these guys. So we've got uncertainty and anxiety for Jack. 
And we get a little hint, a little hint of a bit of uncertainty and anxiety for Stephen, because as he heads off to meet with a fellow surgeon, he picks up on the fact that this fellow surgeon used to have uh, a practice with women patients. Seems seems really odd to say that, but it would have been a particular thing. (laughs) And Stephen asks this guy about the earliest signs of pregnancy. And I'm sure that Stephen's not asking about Lady Harriet. He's not asking for Sophie. <laughs> he's asking about Diana. Yeah. And he's very grateful. And he's just raises this question in our minds. Hang on a second. Wasn't Diana just asking Jack about Sophie's childbirth experience? And what kind of a position does this put Stephen and Jack in with respect to each other? We don't know yet whether Stephen's suspicion or intuition is right about diana we certainly don't know whether diana is going to talk about this openly with Stephen yet but it's another moment of uncertainty like the ground shifts and we're not sure again where Stephen and diana are going to be with respect to each other right and and there we end chapter one just like O'Brien. Yeah. so often just leaves us hanging like that on that note of potential impending pregnancy I think I've got to take a break. What do you say, Ian? (laughs) I think so. Let's take a break and we'll be right back after this short interval. Well, if everybody's had a chance to consult their midwifery specialist, we'll proceed onward. Welcome back. You're back with Ian, the guy with the deadpan NPR delivery. And Mike, who has everything except for the boat, the money, and the time to be a rich sailing enthusiast. <laughs> we're, we're, we're having a little laugh at ourselves here about um, about a comment that was perfectly sensibly put on the Reddit subreddit about the old rematchering series. So um, if you're out there to the guy who wrote about the podcast, do you know what? You nailed us closer than you know. So... Yeah, we, we, we had a, if you're interested in that, go on the subreddit, go look, go look for us, go look for me and you'll find a chat about the podcast. It was really funny. And uh, we'll listen to opinions about us of all shapes and sizes. Well, as, as long as you are listening, we're delighted. Please keep it up. <laughs> and please keep that feedback coming. Yeah, yeah, we love it. So Mike, it's coming closer and closer to the time for the ball. And interestingly, O'Brien starts out this chapter with... A very sort of third-person detached uh, examination through Stephen's eyes of the diversity among the officers and the diversity among their wives. And he talks about this species of English naval officers and how there was a caste system among them. He says, however, that the officers had much in common, unlike their wives, who showed even greater diversity and made what he calls a curious gathering. And Stephen saw... Barmaids, heiresses, shop girls, women of all states and conditions present in their finery or what they felt felt was finery uh, and attending the ball. And again, I think, Mike, Karen put us right here. Stephen's being a little bit snobbish right. about the upper middle class deportment of the ladies. But actually, we think Halifax was a pretty fly town anyway. Well, a very fly town, Halifax. And, and we probably have to agree that I suspect... There was a great diversity amongst naval officers. Certainly, we've seen that in Lucky Jack, that some of them came from great families, some of them did not, some of them, you know, inheriting a great deal of money, some of them winning prize money. And and we've had that in prior novels in the canon, captains who've got highly expensive commands with no money to supply to them, other captains who just dress out the the vessels, all Hollywood, (laughs) with their great fortunes but then have very different cast crew members and cast officers, you know, sycophants around them. You know, I'm thinking back uh, to Confort. And so this this has got to be, I I hadn't thought about it from the idea of, gosh, all right, if we have this diversity of officers, imagine the wider diversity of wives. But luckily, (laughs) as you say, in this fly town of Halifax, in this great time of celebration, you know, O'Brien tells us that the general gaiety, the universal delight at the Shannon's victory, so filled the entire gathering that nearly all the women were in good looks. 
and the ordinary worries of dress and consequences, and husband's rank counted far less than usual. So we've overcome the hierarchies of service rank, social origin, wealth, and beauty with a glorious victory for the English Navy. And I love this description of O'Brien's as well. It it reminds me forward of the first few pages of Treason's Harbour. And it strikes me that O'Brien's very good at describing a collective of people with a quick couple of sentences, especially describing their shared emotional state. And here he's saying, this is a happy bunch of people. And because they're happy and perhaps also because they're in liquor, they give less of a curse about each other's looks than they might ordinarily have done. However, however, that's not to say that there are no social jealousies and there's no awkwardness going on. We see a little bit of this as Jack introduces Stephen to his cousin, a cousin we've never heard of before, a cousin who's a colonel in the foot guards, Colonel Aldington. And Aldington, perhaps carelessly, perhaps with a bit of a dig, tells oh. Jack that back home he had danced with Sophie before shipping over. And this really upsets Jack. You know, if, if Sophie is generally the one in this marriage who's the, the green-eyed monster who's jealous, I think Jack gets a flash of this right now. Mm. And he was thinking that Sophie should be worrying about him and taking time to write a letter because where are the darn letters? And meanwhile, he's sick and wounded and been in an American prison. Meanwhile, she's out dancing with this fairly indifferent character, Colonel Aldington. Yeah, certainly not a guy that uh, one thinks of uh, as as a charming, as a kind, as a as a great representative of of the military officers that Jack would applaud. He seems to be a rather uh, uh, suspect individual, if you will. And with very few exceptions, military officers right. <laughs> get get suspect characterizations by Patrick O'Brien. Let's let's allow Colonel Keating from the Mauritius Command as an honourable exception. But apart from that, if you're a soldier, whether you're a Marine or a Colonel in a fancy Guards regiment, you're not going to get much favourable characterization from Patrick O'Brien. No, no. And he's, I mean, he's not a particularly inimical character. He's not trying to do anybody down. He's just a bit of a gossip and a bit of a rake. And the the less than beautiful face of Halifax society, you might say. Right. And this, this rake out dancing with uh, Jack's wife while Jack suffers in prison is not going down well. And, and a while... Here comes Diana down the stairway there at the Admiral's house, looking absolutely stunning. She and Stephen go off to dance, and Stephen apparently dances pretty well here. And I think Jack, with all of this on top of him, decides he's going to go have a drink. (laughs) And another. Yeah. Another. Uh, And right at this moment of weakness, you know, I could sort of see the angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other. You know, he Mm. opens the woman behind him asking, about you know who that handsome man is, and he's looking around to spot the handsome man, and realizes that she's speaking about him, and of course this works its magic elixir charm. <laughs> it's like a guy too long from home, <laughs> starting to get into his cups, upset at his wife's behavior. No, no, wait a minute. Let me re- rewind that. Let's just say this miss. <laughs> is a woman that Diane had pointed out to Stephen earlier as having an outre dress, you know, outlandish, too much paint. And, uh, but of course, Jack immediately swept up by all the attention she pays him. And even better, she's doting upon the Navy, talking about the Shannon's victory, but she does make a little bit of a mistake at first when she questions openly to Jack why Diana appears to be throwing herself away on this strange little man, a mere naval surgeon. <laughs> Jack sets her straight, and she acquits yep. herself well. We can only imagine how well by talking about her admiration for Lord Nelson. And O'Brien tells us, there was no shorter way to Jack's heart than a love for the service and an adoration of Nelson. <laughs> <laughs> And she's very skillful at it. You know, it's funny. Part of me thinks that the this Miss Smith, and, and by the way, she's been given a name that's, with apologies to all the Smiths out there who are listening, you know, your, your name is a sort of byword often in storytelling for somebody who is or is meant to be or is trying to be nondescript. Right. So we've got Villiers on the one hand. We've got 
Sophie Aubrey, on the other hand, and we've got Miss Smith. So she's almost being written as being a cipher. And if the if the worst thing anybody has ever thought about Diana in the past is that she's a bit flash and a bit of a seductress and a bit inconstant, then we are shown, I think, really clearly here that, that that's not Diana. This Miss Smith is that. This Miss Smith, who is really obviously, and Diana smokes it straight away. She talks about how it's like taking sweets from the mouth of a child, watching her reeling in the the, the hopelessly head-turned Jack Aubrey. And Miss Smith really knows what she's about. I don't think we've got the, the, the resources to say that we blame her and point the finger at her because who knows what our life has been like and how difficult it's been to, to, to maintain the life of a, of a woman in polite society unmarried in Halifax. But she's reeling him in. Well, she is reeling him in. And, you know, that's all, all well and good for the colonel that Jack's just been talking to, to be cruising around, sort of checking out the ladies at the ball. But here we have a woman who's doing the same thing. So in, in a way, a, a little pat on the back to Patrick O'Brien to say, all right, we've got a little bit more equality of the sexes here. And boy, she is smart. I mean, she she also uh, is is very clear about what she's up to. You know, as she continues, she has Jack tell all his Nelson stories and uh, says, oh, how I honor him. Never mind maneuvers, always go straight at him. That's exactly what I feel. <laughs> and it's the only way for anyone with spirit. Oh, how well I understand Lady Hamilton, she says. And <laughs> as our listeners may recall, Lady Hamilton was Lord Nelson's mistress. So Miss Smith is not flying under a false flag here. The signals are clear as we... No. Back to an earlier ball. Engage the enemy closer. Right? <laughs> I've just had it popped into my head, um, the movie Officer and a Gentleman. Oh, I love it. Oh, brilliant. And there's a speech. I mean, of course, it's it's Navy, right? And all these Navy officers are in um, flying school to see if they can qualify to make right. a grade to fly jets in the Navy. And Louis Gossett Jr., who's the drill sergeant, and we love a drill sergeant, beasting Mayo, the character played by Richard Gere, and he warns all of them about, I think he calls them Puget Sound debutantes. He's got this phrase that he uses to describe the women who are on the lookout for a persuadable, attractable, suggestible naval officer to get hooked into. Officer and a gentleman. And it's a pretty downbeat view of women in the Navy town. <laughs> but it's absolutely this scenario that Jack is being warned about. If only Jack had had the foresight to fast forward to the late 1980s and watch an officer and a gentleman and learn from Richard Gere two things. Number one, how to act without blinking. <laughs> and number two, how to not get, <laughs> how to not get seduced by a Puget Sound debutante. Perhaps the novel would have gone very differently. Now, Puget Dev will tell you, oh, baby, don't you worry about no contraceptives. I got that all taken care of. Don't you believe a word of it, sweet pea? Because a Puget Dev will do anything and say anything to trap you. I know this sounds silly to you, especially in this so-called modern age. But you scuzzy college pukes had better watch out, because they're out there. And you, sweet peas, are the answer to the dream. So, despite the best efforts of Marine Gunnery Sergeant Foley... <laughs> Jack has been taken in and Patrick O'Brien is very decent about this. We don't get down and dirty with the details. It's very clear that there are lots of amorous couples. Miss Smith and Jack go into the garden to wander around and they pretty much nearly tread on several couples in advanced states of amorous engagement. And we even also get the girl who comes in with the white dress with the, with the grass stains up her back who's been out there somewhere having fun. And I think Diana says what we're supposed to think, which is that the girl with a white dress, that's okay. That's party fun and, you know, young life. And that that's enjoyable. You might even say admirable from Diana's perspective because she wanted to have the fun that she wanted to have and right. she went out and got it. But Diana really can't stand the sight of this very purposeful, <laughs> very single-minded behavior by Miss Smith and just what damage it's doing potentially to Jack and his reputation and his marriage. Right. I, I love that, you know, Diana tells Stephen that, you know, she knows Miss Smith from India. Uh, she describes her as coming from a set of slow horses and fast women. 
a woman with a reputation as bad as Diana. So Diana really is being pretty straightforward. You know, she's got a reputation worse than mine. Yeah. And, and yeah. You know, Kelly Stephen, that Jack is such an easy target. And like we might say back to the, uh, the Puget Sound devs here that uh, you know, she's seducing Jack because of his money, his money and yeah. his past glory. But Stephen, of course, passes it off, won't, won't really do anything about it. So nature left to its own devices, Jack wakes up yeah. in what O'Brien calls Miss Miss predictable bed. <laughs> and I, I love O'Brien's insight nuance into the human behavior and the little things here. So she's helping him to get dressed. Oh my gosh, she's so, you know, I can't be found like this. We must never do this again. Please sneak out the garden gate and don't be seen. And by the way, I'll leave that gate unbolted tonight. <laughs> How can he not see that he's being played? How can he not see it? Anyhow, there's one of those really cruel juxtapositions coming next. Just as Jack is doing what most young people today would call the walk of shame. Right. You know, b- back to his hotel room that he shares with Stephen, knocking the basin over, being found out, telling a really cheap and predictable untruth to sort of cover up where he's been. There's a note there from the postmaster saying, there's an apology. The associates didn't realize that Captain Aubrey's mail had been set aside and all this mail from Sophie is waiting for him. So again, ground shifts. Jack goes from gallivanting with Miss Smith to a reminder that there really was a huge stack of mail of loving and important mail for him from Sophie. And Stephen goes back to see Jack with the pile of mail open in front of him. And he is looking on the one hand, deeply contented, but also worried. Yeah. Oh, and you know, you you get this little interlude of Stephen quoting uh, the old Greek, (laughs) you know, which we then have to follow through to the Latin Socrates, know thyself. Um, Yeah an inscription on the temple of Apollo at Delphi. Mm-hmm. And Stephen taking that and expounding upon it, telling Jack that men often do not see what they don't wish to see. And he uses himself as an example about not seeing a patient's clear physical condition right before his eyes for weeks. Uh, that, that we men are fallible creatures, that we're adept at self-deception, that it's so hard to know ourselves. And I'm wondering to myself, I mean, clearly he's trying to make the point to Jack. He's trying to make the point to himself. But what all is he commenting on here, you think? Well, he's he's talking about Diana's pregnancy, I guess. And he's commenting on how Jack's turned himself against Sophie, about Jack's a bit short-sighted. But I think Stephen's continually doubting his own own, own perception. I think he's even doubting his own motives a bit, maybe. He's really questioning himself, why am I doing what I'm doing? Yeah, and I don't think that from it's interesting this thing about Diana's suspected or actual or potential pregnancy. I don't think it's ever talked about by Stephen in these chapters with anything like outrage or regret or shock or anger at Johnston or anger at her. He sees this very factually for what it is. He sees straight away that this is a situation that he had no part in creating, and he can't really attach any kind of responsibility to himself for fixing it or taking care of it or turning Diana away because of it. It's just a thing. It's just a set of circumstances, but it's really striking some doubts into his heart about what, what he is perceiving and whether his, his powers of perception are anything like up to the task. Yeah. That, that where Diana is concerned that he really, you know, he he is a physician. Uh, He of all people should have spotted these signs and probably was spotting them, was registering them, but was kind of pushing them to the back of his mind. I think that was part of his getting at going, gosh, this was this has been hitting me in the face and I yeah. just haven't acknowledged it here. But to your point, yeah. not with any blame or uh, anything else, but just a realization that his powers of perception, which are normally really acute, 
he's he's been deceiving himself here. Yeah. Jack, as usual, listens wholeheartedly and attentively, deeply philosophically. No, none of the above. <laughs> <Jack>. <laughs> you know, he's rumbling through his papers. Stephen is yakking on, and Jack, you know, yeah. turns around completely. Dis- you know, not referring to it at all. Mentions the problems with Kimber. You know, this guy that Jack yeah. has signed the power of attorney over, who continues to spend Jack's money recklessly. Um, and is pressing Sophie to sign for him to spend more, to encumber more of Jack's assets. You know, otherwise, Jack's initial investment will be lost. And Stephen, thankfully, reminds Jack of that advice he gave him way back in Desolation Island, right? That there's nothing he can really do about this till he gets home, that he has to adopt this stoic mindset. And remember, when he gets home, he's going to be bringing word of England's victory. He can hire the best lawyers in England to sort this out. Could be good news. And Jack listens, but ominously, he says, yeah, yeah, and I may have enough worries to attend to here in Halifax. And we get this story of just how persistent Miss Smith is being in hounding Jack, how she looks for opportunities to be seen out and about kind of arm in arm with Jack. And Jack really notices this, you know, he's realizing pretty quickly that he's been a fool and that he's being very visibly taken for a fool. It says he sees the way others look at him and is obliged to admit that the company of a flighty histrionic, unsteady, headstrong, active and ill judging young woman was not enviable. By the way, that's Patrick O'Brien writing in Stephen Maturin's tone right there. That's one of those five or six adjective multi-epithets that normally come out of the mouth of Stephen Maturin. Right. But that's O'Brien writing on Jack's self-reflection, which is quite telling. Miss Smith had an opinion of her value warranted neither by her charms nor her understanding. And there were times when he wished Nelson had never, never met Lady Hamilton. Ooh. Well, malign per- power of celebrity. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and perhaps he's knowing himself a little bit better than Stephen thought <laughs> a minute ago, right? Yeah. Oh, gosh. The, the Miss Smith story reminds me of <laughs> a, a, a story not about me, but about somebody else. Miss Smith keeps showing up at the Shannon, and she has to visit the Shannon, and Jack tries to put off her requests. Um, I, was, I was once on the crew of a boat in the tall ships race in the harbor in Gothenburg, and there was a female member of our crew. If you're out there, Liz, listening to the podcast, hello, how are you doing? And she was being pursued by a very young, lugubrious, mournful-faced Polish sailor from one of the big Polish square riggers. And he would sit by the harbor day in, day out, hoping that she would appear. And she was going, get rid of this guy. I want to go to the bar. I want to party. I want to go out and see Gothenburg. And this guy's sitting there waiting to ambush me with his... Uh, with his affections. So in the end, we tied her up in a sail bag oh, no. and carried her, carried her off the boat, telling this Polish guy that, yeah, we're just taking this to the loft and yeah, it needs patching. And he kind of looked at us suspiciously and then eventually he gave up. How horrifying. So, <laughs> so it makes me laugh to think of, you know, Miss Smith hanging around and Jack prides himself on being part of the naval world He's not sure about women stepping over from the world of the shore into the world of the Navy. And this is a real step too far for Miss Smith to take, I think. Well, and and it's funny. It's not until he's actually on board the Shannon with her that all of a sudden, you know, O'Brien writes his natural authority returned, but that by land he was pitiably weak so that he can finally say, ah, we're getting out of here. But then, um, you know, back on shore, O'Brien reminds us that, that Jack despite his early reputation as a rake in his younger days, is really comparatively defenseless in the face of women. He, he really mm. doesn't understand how they think and operate. And, and he just longs for Brooke to get well enough to write his dispatch so they can all get back to England and he can get the heck away from Miss Smith. And he's also thinking to himself, my gosh, you know, sooner or later, her brother, the soldier, is going to be back in town here and he's going to learn about all this. And, you know, it's yeah. likely not to go well either. Uh, yeah, we know how men of this age resolve problems of that kind and that's not going to work out well for Jack, especially with one arm still in the sling. Right. And Miss Smith's really piling on this image of herself as the, as the wronged one. She keeps saying she'll be another Dido and she makes... These quite gross, quite 
cheap approaches to Jack. She overturns her dog cart cornering too fast and causes a big fuss. And Diana esteems her even less as she helps her. And Miss Smith keeps saying, oh, I'll be another Dido. Right. And <laughs> Dido, the, the queen of Carthage. By the way, Dido's a legit heroine, and I'm a big fan of the Purcell opera, um, Dido and Aeneas. Dido's Lament, the final aria, is one of the great heartbreaking pieces of music. I really don't like the idea of Miss Smith (laughs) putting on on the clothes of Dido for the sake of saying how she really longs for the guy that she managed to spend a one-night stand with. said, I've met Dido, and you, ma'am, are no Dido. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. (laughs) Oh, my and and diana's seeing through all of this she's seeing through jack she's seeing through the hysterics of miss smith she can't believe that jack is so stupid she can't believe that this woman is so manipulative yeah well but there is good news because diana has heard from the admiral that brooke's dispatch is being written by somebody else since brooke can't and that you know it's going to be put aboard two ships one aboard the nova scotia a copy, and then the original, along with the officer taking it, oh, and the mail packet, because the mail packet is likely to reach Portsmouth before the Nova Scotia does, which Jack agrees with. So Jack runs immediately to get passage for the three of them on the mail packet and to, if you will, get the heck out of Dodge. (laughs) I'm surprised he didn't put on a false moustache. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Aubrey? No, no. Never heard of him. Uh, he looks a bit like my twin right. brother. Asking for a friend. <laughs> but then we have this really striking, really solemn conversation between Stephen and Diana. Mm. Stephen and Diana are going to have this really deep and fundamental conversation about their relationship. It's very telling that Stephen slips on his blue spectacles because we know and she knows that she can see right through him. And he suggests that they're going to get married by the local priest, that that will get her in completely safe status with regard to citizenship so that she can sail home and she goes into this very nervous very agitated state she goes to smoke a cigar and remember that one of the things that he feels slightly disillusioned about is that she's acquired a taste for bourbon and cigars right and in the cloud of smoke she says Stephen, i love you dearly and if ever i were to ask any man's charity it would be yours but my dear i know very well that you do not want to marry me in the least <gasps> she spotted it wow and I have known ever since I recovered my wits after that appalling time in Boston. So do not lie. And, and again, we get all of Matchman's responses told in this conversation by her reaction to it, which is a, a, a O'Brien's kind of signature way, I mm. think, of very, very discreetly describing how Matchman's going on. No, do not lie, Matchman. It's infinitely kind in you. It's no use at all. And in any case, and here she makes this admission of the situation that he has suspected and has clearly been bothering him. In any case, she said, looking at him defiantly, I would not marry any man while I was in child by another. No, not to save my life. Give me a drink, Stephen. These confessions are perfectly exhausting. Oh, Diana. My heart goes out a little bit here because Diana is finally getting this off her chest and I'm sure is wondering what his reaction is going to be. And then, you know, she's asked for a drink and Stephen tells her that he was going to recommend... You know, some weeks ago, no more tobacco or alcohol, given her obvious condition. <laughs> and so I think she's sort of yeah. probably bowled over by the fact that Stephen has known. Um, and he suggests that given that she's pregnant and given that all she's been through in the recent battle of the Chesapeake, that it's really aggravating her ability to see things clearly. For example, that she can't really see how real his attachment is to her. And he says, I may not appear as the trembling supplicant in my former days of my almost youth, but that is the effect of age. No more. An outward display of emotion is indecent when one's hair is gray, but upon my honor, my essential attachment is unchanged. Ah, so... He's, uh, he's trying to press his case, as you say, blue spectacles firmly on. So he you know, can't yeah. see him straying from the truth. And then, you know, he makes this heartfelt request. And this, this really got to me. And he says, even if you were right, he's telling her, you know, even if she's right that Stephen's proposal is an act of charity, which I deny entirely. 
There is the question of expediency. There is the question of your civil status. A marriage, even a nominal marriage, at once restores your nationality. Perhaps even more important, it gives your child a name. Yeah. Reflect, my dear, upon the condition of a bastard. And then Stephen just goes into this, as I say, this incredible discussion about what it's like to be a bastard. You know, all the things you are banned from, all the way that anybody, no matter who they are at all, can, you know, throw this right in your face. That if you're even admitted to society at all, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of people pitying you or something. And uh, he ends this, this incredible litany of facts of his condition by saying, I believe you are aware that I am myself a bastard. I speak with full knowledge when I say that it's a cruel, cruel thing to entail upon a child. Wow. And um, part of me is applauding at this point because he's really fumbled some of his earlier attempts right. to 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 press his case with Diana. And often he fumbles because he lapses into very dispassionate kind of enlightenment scientific rationalist evaluation of his prospects and his role in society and his fortune. And he might, you know, he might just have used the argument about, well, it's a marriage of convenience and this will help you get citizenship. But, you know, Diana is very moved by this. And I'm thinking, yeah, you've actually come close to making a, a point that I think she might have taken on. If if she had ever had much of a maternal instinct, I think she that might have been the clincher. But I really suspect that Diana doesn't have a maternal instinct, at least not a very strong one. No, no, no. As you say, she's so moved. But she comes back to say that, you know, that Johnson's child, like Johnson, will be a monster. Um and then she begs Stephen, she says, you know, kind of acknowledging everything that he said, she begs him to give her something to terminate the pregnancy. Um, yeah. And for Stephen, this is clear evidence that her judgment is completely astray. And you know, he reminds her that his entire function is to preserve life, not to take it. And, and they go back and forth just a little bit, both really at the point of begging and realize that uh, they're both completely immovable that we're, we're not going to get there from here. It's really a really sad, really emotional passage to read. And part of me also woke up to the possibility that O'Brien might have been in some way conscious and in some way of his time in writing about reproductive rights. This is what, the late 1970s, early 1980s. Um, I, I, I do not for a minute think he's put this episode into the story to give him the chance to put a contemporary 1980s view on a woman's right to choose in, in into this novel. But it, it did make me stop and think because he's talked about slavery, he's talked about social injustice, he's mm-hmm. talked about um, homophobia, he's talked about all kinds of things that make me think you know, he wanted to examine the world of the early 19th century with a late 20th century viewpoint. But that thought of mine was completely put to bed when when Stephen says this is something that I can't do, and the combination of his, his faith and his view of his Hippocratic oath, it, this this is really something that brings about the the immovable force. <laughs> Sorry, what is it? The irresistible force and the immovable object, and the immovable object in this case is Stephen saying, you know, I'm I'm a physician. I've sworn an oath. That's not something I'm going to do. Yeah, and it's one bastard to another. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I want to give this child, which which kind of really, um, I, I had to swell with affection, further affection for Stephen here, because that's uh, yeah. yeah, that's a lot to take on, and he is doing it willingly, even though his mainspring has stopped. No, and there have been plenty of other occasions in in life and in his work where he's been willing to do what many people would call uh, a morally dubious thing. Yes, for the for the sake of expediency, like. Uh, like like the operation to help another man pass for a Jew. Right. He'll do some things, but he won't do that. No. So as you say, yeah, your heart swells a bit. So Mike, they're about to set sail. The good news is we're going to be back at sea. Right, right. Yeah, right in the middle of for- the movable thing. We've got the, you know, the Admiral's messenger coming in saying, it's time to get aboard the packet right now. Get out of here. Yeah. She's flying the blue Peter. Uh, the bad news, well, part of the bad news is for Diana, that's going to be more seasickness. Oh my gosh, yes. But, right. But we're going to be at sea. Jack's not going to be the captain. 
and Jack's singular aim is to get out of Halifax and get back across the Atlantic as quickly as possible, carrying dispatches. And when has that ever gone well? <laughs> no, no, no. Right, exactly. I mean, what? here we go. Let's launch the packet. Let's go straight home. It's everything everybody wants. And so we know in true O'Brien fashion, surely that's not going to happen as a straight line, right? <laughs> no, indeed. So, Mike, it's been great to get into the first twists and turns of the first couple of chapters of this book, but I have a feeling we've got a lot of book still to come. Oh, I think you're right, Ian. What do you say next week to a little bit more Patrick O'Brien? You know, Mike, I should like that of all things. There's our little lover's hole fan in the background. <laughs>